Father, bless the study of your word tonight. Bless each heart as we listen and hear. And may we be uh, sharp in our, in our hearing and drawn into you, Father. And I thank you. I just want to praise you for your word. It is so powerful, so wonderful that, that we can all just gather around it tonight. And Lord, I, I pray to remind all of us that um, what's effective here and what's, what's challenging and what's exciting, God, is that it's your word that we're looking at. It's nothing else. It's not my speaking or teaching style. It's, it's nothing like that. Father, it's you and it's your word. It's the fact that your Holy Spirit teaches us and moves us and excites us. And so I pray that you just keep us wide open to that. Help us to hear what you want us to hear and continue to equip and to train us. Father, I praise you for uh, tapping Ben and Joanna this afternoon and, and giving them opportunity to literally walk out exactly what you brought to them this morning. And I pray for more opportunities like that. Lord, you know my, my vision, and I believe it's, it's God's sense, it's just that uh, this be a church full of people who, who can stand up for the name of Jesus, who can open up the Word and, and who can bring to mind scriptures and who truly are well-fed so that they can be life-changers in this world. We all just want to do that. That's why we're here. It's what this life is about. It's about Jesus. And Lord, we love you so much. We want to live for you. Show us how and continue to teach us with these words tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 10 is a real short chapter, but based on the verses up on the wall behind me, you know that we're not going to be here a short amount of time. Eleven verses in this chapter. It's uh, tied... Well, it's not the shortest. There's one chapter shorter that we'll come up to a little bit later. Uh, chapter 4, I believe it was, was also a short chapter like this. But there's so much here. And again, it fascinates me how it connects to what we were talking about this morning. Something to know about chapter 10 is a parenthetical chapter. I use that word. I want you to get used to that word because you'll hear it a few times over the next few chapters. Parenthetical, like the word parenthesis. So when you hear me say parenthetical, don't freak out. Just think, oh yeah, parenthesis. Okay, so this is something that's kind of in between things happening. Something in between those parentheses that's being uh, stuck in at this point in time, either to give me more understanding about where we're at or, uh, or a large picture illumination. Chapter 12, when we get there, is a parenthetical chapter because it gives us the whole history, the whole history of Israel. From, from beginning to end, all in one chapter, but it's put right in the middle of Revelation. Why? Because it's an important component of what's going on in the tribulation. Chapter 10 is like that. We have seen six of the trumpet judgments, but we haven't seen the seventh yet, and we won't see the seventh until we get into chapter 11. And so in chapter 10, this is all happening kind of in between, and it's an experience that John has that's written in right here. And I, I think we're still right along in the flow of Revelation, but this little section shows us a couple of powerful truths that are worth the entire study tonight. Just two truths that you're going to take out, but they're so amazing, they're worth the time. So look at, look at verse 1, Revelation 10:1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. Watch this description. And the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. <laughs> so four verses into this chapter, right off the bat, we're going, What? This is another just incredible, fantastic experience that John has in receiving this revelation. First thing I ask as I look at this is, Who, who is this strong angel coming down out of heaven? Now when you look at this, and you hear this description, do you have a sense as to who this strong angel might be? Jesus. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Well, listen again. He comes with a cloud, a rainbow on his head. His face is like the sun. His feet like pillars of fire. He, when he speaks, he cries out as like when a lion roars. What is Jesus called? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And so immediately you might think, well, this seems to be Jesus. There's a lot of similarities here. There are a lot of a great company of Bible teachers who say this is Jesus, this strong angel who comes forward. Jesus, by the way, and we've seen this in the Old Testament, while he's not an angel by nature, you may recall the word for angel in the Greek, it's angelos, very close to how we say angel. In the Hebrew, it's malach. Both words simply mean messenger. And Jesus in the Old Testament, what we call Christophanies, those, those appearances of Jesus that we know are Jesus because even though it says he's an angel, a malach in Hebrew, we know it's him because he's worshipped or because he speaks as God speaking. And, and there are those different sections where we've even seen in our Old Testament study so far where Jesus shows up and I'm convinced it's him. And the reason why I'm not convinced it's an angel is because the word Malach or Angelos can just mean messenger. It doesn't have to mean angel as, as we think of it. This is going to happen. Every time I put my hand in my pocket, it's going to pop. Okay, so I'll try not to do that. And we're going to get a new one of these. Tom, where are you? Where are you? There you are. Yeah, we're, this, is, this is toast. It is. Okay. So this angel, though... We've seen the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, a picture of Jesus, often Jesus showing up, Christophanes. All of this description sounds like Jesus, but listen, this angel cannot be Jesus. And I'm absolutely sure of it. I can tell you unequivocally this is not Jesus. How do we know? Three words to jot down just to think this through. Number one, order. Order. For Jesus to come as a messenger at this point in God's program would be somewhat out of order. At this point, Jesus is magnified. He is glorified. We saw that in chapter 1. He is presented as the Lamb who was slain, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, all these wonderful descriptions, the Alpha, the Omega. He is on the throne in heaven. He is commanding things going on. It's like the king all of a sudden now backtracking and being a messenger again. And so it's out of order. It doesn't make sense in the order of things in the Revelation. Again, we know he appeared as a messenger in the past. We know he is all these other great things, alchemy, omega, lion, and lamb, but he is commanding worship in heaven. At this point, he's at the tail end of what we read in Philippians chapter 2. I'll read this to you. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well at this point of things he is magnified. He is Lord. He already is right now by the way. Once resurrected, once after the, the ascension when John saw him in his glorified state, he is Lord. It's a little out of order 
Jesus is right now on the throne. Revelation 5.13 says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So that alone might not be enough to say this is not Jesus. We'll see him come in, in, in a, a different way in Revelation 19. But in this chapter we can say, okay, yeah, it seems a little out of order, but it still sounds like Jesus. Number two, oath. Oath. This messenger, this angel, this strong angel, swears by Jesus. Look at verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there would be delayed no longer. This angel is swearing by the one on the throne who created everything. And Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that by him and for him all things were created. So this angel is swearing by the one on the throne. So unless Jesus is swearing by himself or on himself, there's a detachment here. This angel cannot be Jesus. Now we're going to come back to verses 5 and 6 momentarily, but don't miss that the, the angel here, the strong angel, swears by the one who is eternal and by one who is greater than himself. John chapter 15, verse 20. Jesus said, Remember, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. So again... We have the order of things, we have the oath, and now, and here's the most compelling reason why this cannot be Jesus. Note the phrase in verse 1. I saw another strong angel. Key word there is another. The third thing to jot down is original. Original. We've seen several angels in the book of Revelation so far. If you want a, a, just a quick overview of them, Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Revelation chapter 7, verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun, having the seal of the living God. Revelation chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. I saw seven angels who stand before God with seven trumpets given to them. And another angel came, verse 3, and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. Skipping ahead to Revelation chapter 14. In verse 6 it tells us, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. This one's really cool. Having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. You see how different things are going to be during the tribulation period? That there will be an angel visible flying in the heavens preaching to those on earth. God is still trying to save mankind even at that late date. Incredible. Verse 16, there are seven bowls given to seven angels. Uh, chapter 18 and verse 1 tells us after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was illumined with his glory. Chapter 19 verse 17 <clears throat> tells us I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying all to, the, to all the birds which fly in mid heaven come assemble for the great supper of God chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand and he laid hold of the dragon the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and finally in chapter 22 verses 8 and 9 I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw it, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. And the angel there says, Worship God. So what we see here, coming down in these first few verses of chapter 10, is another strong angel. Listen. There is not another angel like Jesus 
He is the only one. He is not another because he is like no other. He is not compared to one of the many. He's not, as we talked about this morning, a prophet like Moses or like Muhammad or like some other person. He is not like them. He is completely different. Jesus is God, not just another angel. Now, people may look for replacements, but gang, there are no replacements for Jesus Christ. Peter said, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Muhammad cannot save you. He died, he was buried, his body is still in the grave. Buddha, same thing. Joseph Smith, same thing. Baha'u'llah, and I was going to mention this this morning and totally forgot. Baha'u'llah, the, the Baha'i faith, actually has some headquarters in Israel. And you can go visit the Baha'i Temple in Israel. We won't when we go there. It's kind of a waste of time as far as I'm concerned. But you can go visit his grave in Israel. Guess what? Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith, died and was buried and remains in the grave to this day. When you go to see the garden tomb, when you go to look for the body of Jesus, you will not find it in Israel. Because he's not there. He is risen, just as he said. He is like no other. Now you might say, but Rick, okay, I look at this angel and his, his face was like the sun speaking of glory he's got this, this blinding wonderful light coming out of him doesn't speak of glory and why would this angel have this kind of glory and I say simple those who spend time in the presence of the Lord always reflect his glory always look like the Lord always have something of the Lord shining from them like Moses did he went up in the mountain he was in the presence of God Moses was no more special than you or I Except that he was in the presence of God and when he came down, the Bible tells us he glowed and it freaked out the sons of Israel. They told him, put a veil over your face because you're scaring us, man. That's too much to look at. And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 12, Therefore having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. We're not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. By the way, and this is interesting, Moses put the veil over his face, not to hide the glory, but to hide the fact that the glory was fading. To hide the fact that he couldn't keep the glory. That's what Paul tells us. And Paul goes on and says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Those who spend time in the presence of the Lord are going to shine. You can't help it. There's an attraction there. Also, there is a repulsion there. If you spend a lot of time with Jesus, some people are just going to be drawn to you. Others are going to run like crazy. Because they'll sense that in you. They'll see the glory of the Lord. The time, the, the wonderful relationship you have, it's going to frighten some. Again, Wednesday night. Man, this guy came unglued when we started talking about Jesus. When Jesus became the issue. When the glory and person and the godliness of Jesus became apparent, that's when he began to combat it and fight it. And that's the truth. If you stand in the presence of Jesus, you will shine. Paul says in Philippians 2.14, that we're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. I don't like that verse much. <laughs> so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom, listen, among whom you appear as lights in the world. You look like a light. And gang, it's not something that you can generate. 
You can't just say, I want to be a light. I'm going to go be a light. And leave Jesus out of the picture. If you are not in his presence, if you don't spend time with him, you will not be a light. You will not shine. Now you can be a believer. You can be a Christian. You can be someone who I believe is saved, saved by grace. But if you're not spending the time, as you are even tonight, in the presence of the Lord, you're not going to shine. It is key to walking out our Christian lives, especially in such a way that changes lives around us, that we appear as lights in the world, Paul says, holding fast to the word of life. So, we know this angel is great. We know he comes from the presence of the Lord Jesus, but he is not the Lord Jesus. By way of interest, um, Hal Lindsey states that he thinks it's possible this may be the Archangel Michael, because this is obviously one cool angel. One studly angel. Powerful, yes. Face like the sun, feet like pillars of fire, which does denote a degree of judgment and authority. His voice like a lion's roar. I mean, this is a powerful angel, but not Jesus. This angel's great. Jesus is greater. This angel is mighty. Jesus is almighty. Now, in verse 4, we come to something really interesting here. Very strange in the book of Revelation, especially because of the book of Revelation. Do you remember what the book of Revelation, what the word for Revelation is in the Greek? Anyone know off the top of your head? Hmm? Yes, yes, say it, say it. Throw it out there. Apocalypse. It's the word apocalypse. Literally, apocalypsis. But the word apocalypse that we've taken to mean horrible happening is not what it means. It just means unveiling, revealing. This book is to be opened up, not sealed up. It's for us to understand, to know more. God gave it to us to reveal what he was going to do, not to make it difficult or confusing for us. However, we get to verse 4 and suddenly, and it's the only time, we see the Lord say, seal up. Seal up. Don't share this. Don't talk about this. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them. And I think, wait a minute, Lord. You can't just put it out there and not tell us what it is. That's not right. It's almost like he's saying, I've got a secret. And I'm not going to tell you. Well, why did you tell me you have a secret in the first place? I mean, you know why we do it. Oh, boy, I know something I just can't talk about. No, no, no. Once you've put it out there, you're required to talk about it. Okay? And the Lord does this. Why does he do this? I don't understand. Now, listen. Because I've read this, and, and three and a half years ago or so, when I studied through this and taught through it the first time, I, just, I hung on this verse for a long time. I thought, there's got to be an answer here. Maybe it's in the rest of the chapter. And so I studied it, and I looked at it, and I considered it, and I read a lot of commentaries about it, and asked different people about it, and looked to find out what it meant. You want to know what I found out? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. I still have no clue. You read this verse, you think, okay, why... What did he say? I don't know. But why is it sealed up? And why, Lord, do you give us this verse where you say... Something was said, but you're not allowed to know what it is. God's saying it's none of your beeswax. No, this is not for you. In other words, and this brings an incredible amount of peace, I've given you everything you need to know. You don't need to know this. I, I, I don't know this. I don't get it. That's okay. Wait, Rick, are you saying ignorance is bliss? I'm saying this. 
Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. There are things that we are not to know. Things that we don't understand. Things in our very lives today that happen to us, and we go, Why did that happen, Lord? I don't get it. Why when everything seems so wonderful, we're all heading down this happy little road, why did we have that accident? Why, Lord, is my life going in the direction? Why did the job not work out? Why did everything I thought was headed your direction? But it's not. Why, Lord? Why? The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. In other words, every verse of every line of the book of Revelation is for us to understand because it's been revealed, except for chapter 10, verse 4. That's none of our business. We're not to know this thing. We'll warm you up here. Again, what is the revelation? What is the revelation of this book? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revelation. Revelation 19.10, the key verse in my mind of this whole entire book and of the Bible, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In other words, that's what it's about. That's the whole point of prophecy is to testify, to point to, to draw us directly to Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 in the King James Version says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. And Colossians chapter 2, verse 2 says, The true knowledge of God's mystery, His mystery, is Christ Himself. Jesus is the revelation of mystery. In whom, Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. I've said it this morning. I'll say it again tonight. We don't need anything other than Jesus. But if I don't understand the Baha'i faith, how do I respond to someone who's preaching the Baha'i faith? Gang, what is being preached there is nonsense anyway. It's delusion. It's not truth. It's flowery words sent to try and drum up some sense of religiosity that's not grounded in truth. What we need to know is the truth. Paul says, I say this so no one will delude you with persuasive argument. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. You want to have some wisdom? You looking for knowledge in this world? It's in Christ. That's the place you go. He's the one who has it. By the way, Jesus is all we truly need for effective evangelism too. We don't need training courses. We don't need a wealth of scripture memorization even. It's not an impressive resume of ministry training that makes us good evangelists. It's not even a holy life that necessarily attracts another person. It's Jesus in you. It's the relationship you have with him. I was talking with, um, with Jeff just the other night. And uh, we were just talking about Bible study and different things. And, and you can go ahead and tell Jeff I said this, Penelope. But he, he deludes himself a little bit thinking that he doesn't know. He said this to me. He said, Rick, I just don't know all the things about the Bible you know. I don't even know all the things about the Bible my wife knows. Make sure you call up scriptures right and left. And I'm like, oh, where to find that, you know? And I said to Jeff and I say to you, you don't have to know all of that. You need to know Jesus. You focus your hearts on knowing Jesus and the rest will become known to you because in Him is all the wisdom and knowledge. It's there. The more we pursue Him, the more we'll understand His Word, the more we'll see His Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In fact, flip over there real quickly. 1 Corinthians, no, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
beginning around verse 1, right at the beginning of the chapter there, 1 Corinthians 2, 1. Paul had a great experience. And to understand this, you really, if you follow his, his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, you can see this much more clearly. But Paul went to the city, the Greek city of Athens. If you've studied this or heard this, you remember he made this, this uh, trip into Athens. He'd been kicked out of every decent city he'd been to. So he's kicked out and he heads on into Athens and he's going to meet Timothy and some of the others there. Well, he comes into Athens and he begins to look around and notice all of the pagan monuments. And as he sees them, he goes up, goes up on the hill, the Areopagus, and there gather before all of the thinkers and the philosophizers and the Greeks who just love to sit around and tickle each other's ears. Paul comes up there and says, I have a, a religion to talk to you about. I have a faith to talk to you about. Actually, it's this, it's this idol you have down here to the unknown God. I, I want to talk to you about the unknown God. And Paul begins to share this whole thing with the Greeks, with the Athenians. And he begins to speak in this real philosophical sounding language. And you can read it, I believe it's long about Acts 17, I think. But he starts using all of this. Well, after that, he doesn't get hardly any comments. A few people believe. Most of them laugh him off. And he leaves Athens, and he heads to Corinth. And when he gets to Corinth, he changes his ministry style. He shifts. Listen closely to what happens. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. That's what he did in Athens. He came as a great philosopher. And you can read the words that he used, and he comes off as one who's trying to use the language of the Athenians. And it didn't work. Verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This was Paul's great enlightening moment. Something I believe that really changed his entire ministry from that point on. Man, he tried to bring the word, he tried to bring God using the language of the day, trying to be relevant and cutting edge and cultural there in Athens, and it didn't work. And so he goes to Corinth, and he's shaken up, and he's beaten up, and when he arrives in Corinth, what does he do? I know only Christ and Him crucified. That's all I've got for you. The flowery speech didn't work. That kind of thinking, trying to approach the world as the world. And let me tell you, it doesn't work today. Becoming like the world to bring the world to Christ never works. Bringing Christ to the world as He is, that's what saves souls. I know only Christ and Him crucified. And some of you know this story. Several years ago when I was in college, my freshman year, I was in Bible class with a friend of mine, Chris Goldman. And we had this Bible test. And it was a hard test, and this teacher gave us the test basically to show us how little we knew. And I got a 62, and it was the second highest grade in the class. Pretty proud of that. But Chris sat down beside me, started taking the test, and I saw him write just a few things down and get up and hand in the test and walk out of the classroom. And I thought that was weird, and, and later on when we got the test back, I found out why. Chris wrote his name at the top, looked, realized he didn't know anything, flipped it over, and on the back wrote, I choose only to know Christ and Him crucified. <laughs> Which was very uh, creative. He got an F plus from, <laughs> from the professor for that. But there is something to that game. As I said this morning, I was not equipped 
on Wednesday night to face off with someone about the Baha'i faith. I didn't know what the background was. The teaching, I had no idea. I wasn't ready to fight him on his turf. And so rather than fight at all, God, and I'm so thankful the Spirit was there, led us into a discussion of Jesus. And that's all we talked about. I don't know about that, but I know about Jesus. I know about Christ and Him crucified. And Jesus, gang, is all we need to know. It's the defining question of Christianity. Matthew 16, 15. Jesus says to Peter, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Once you answer that question correctly, you got the rest. You got the rest. It's all about Jesus. Now... Back to verse 4 again of, of Revelation chapter 10, this sealed up thing that we don't know and we don't understand. There are those who have claimed, by the way, to have broken the code. Ellen G. White of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, she's the one who founded that. She claimed to have broken the code. She knew what this code was. Interesting, oftentimes cults will say they know what these codes are. Anytime there's something hard to understand or mysterious in the Bible, the cults will say, oh, we know about that. You'll find another typical thing about cults and false religion is they are very into mystery. Very into the unknown. Into the esoteric. Into those things that we, ah, you really have to walk a few years with us before you get to that level. And by the time you get to that level, you're sunk. So many of them look great on the outside. You've seen the the, the Mormon commercials, right? For family. Boy, you watch one of those commercials and say, sign me up, that's great. I mean, I'm going to miss the Coca-Cola, but sign me up for the rest. It's just, you know, it seems so good until you get further in. And it's, again, this, this mysterious. That's where the cults tend to thrive. But the truth is, on this verse, we don't know and we can't know. And I, I want to give you a quote. I just heard this this afternoon. J.B. Phillips said the following. He said, if God was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. I like that. God was small enough to figure out He wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. So there are some things about God we don't understand. There are some things that are beyond us. But if we're not to know what was said here, why say anything at all? Why not, Lord, just leave verse 4 out? Tell John, don't write anything. Well, John writes. Well, there was something said, but I can't tell you what it is. (laughs) Why? What's it there for? A couple of things. Number one, this verse brings us peace of mind today. It brings us peace of mind. We don't have to know and understand everything. And in that case, I kind of go, good, because I can't know it all. It's all right to be dumb about some things. Right, Joe? Amen, brother. (laughs) You'll have to get to know Joe better to know why that was funny. Anyway, little story. G. Campbell Morgan was a great, great theologian of the last century. But he had to watch his daughter on her deathbed. She was 16 years old. And G. Campbell Morgan knelt down by his daughter's deathbed, watched her in this state, and he prayed and he prayed for the Lord to bring healing, for the Lord to to change this situation. And as he prayed, he would later recount that God brought to him a very specific biblical story. As he prayed, he was led into the story of Jairus' daughter. Jairus, who was the synagogue leader, who went to get Jesus, come, my daughter's sick. And as they went going back there, and Jesus was taking his time and healing people along the way, and, and the, the, the attendant to Jairus came up and said, don't bother the master anymore, your daughter's dead. And Jesus said, don't fear, just, just have faith, trust me. So off they went, they get to the house, Jesus clears the room, goes in there, and he says, Talitha kum, which means, daughter I say, rise. And so G. Campbell Morgan, 
thinks through the story, believes, man, I've been given this story by the Lord. Daughter, arise. You can read about it. Mark chapter 5, verse 41. Daughter, arise. And, and he just knew this was for him. And he's looking at his daughter on her deathbed. Daughter, arise. Daughter, arise. He thought, this is great. She's going to live. And he grabbed hold of this promise. And he held on to it. And three days later, his daughter died. And as he mourned the loss, he said, God, why? Why did you give me this verse? Daughter, arise. And the answer that came back to him was, I did exactly as I said I would do. I took her hand and I said, daughter, arise, and I brought her home. I brought her where she belongs. We, guys, we don't always know why. And I don't know how, but I can know who. And that's the peace of mind that this verse brings. There are things I'm not going to understand, but I can know Jesus. I can know the who that matters in this world. Remember, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. And Peter objected to it. Jesus said something. It's one of those little verses that shoots by real quickly, but listen to it. John 13, 7. He said, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. You don't get it right now, Peter, but you're going to get to know. You're going to understand it hereafter. That verse, that word hereafter is very interesting to me. And students of Revelation, think about this. What do you think the word hereafter is in the Greek? Metatauta. Now see, that was, I saw it. I saw the word hereafter and I went, hereafter, after these things. It's got to be metatauta. One of my favorite Greek phrases. And so I looked it up and it's not. (laughs) But, (laughs) but listen to this. It's not metatauta. It's metatophos. Metatophos. Metatauta means after these things. Metatophos means after the grave. You may not understand now, but you will understand after the grave. Metatophos. Now there are a couple of possible understandings of this. He could just be saying, Peter, after my resurrection, Metatophos, after the, the grave, you're going to get it. And Peter did. Peter did understand. Once Jesus was resurrected, all of it made sense like a flood. Suddenly Peter was one of these just, you know, the apostles that changed men because they saw Jesus resurrected. It changed them completely. And Peter understood after the grave. But there's more to it, I believe, gang. He could also be saying to us, after the grave, you're going to get it. Metatophos. You're not going to know it all right now. You are all going to come to a point, if you're not raptured, where the end of your life comes and you will not have discovered all the intricacies of God and all the mysteries, even the wonders found in the Bible. You won't understand all of that, but you will metatophos after the grave. It'll make sense. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, then we see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. And that's peace of mind. I don't know how. I don't know why. But I do know who. It's Jesus. And He's all I need to know. This verse brings peace of mind for us today. But secondly, and just quickly to process, this verse will bring presence of mind for others tomorrow. You and I gain peace of mind out of verse 4, not knowing it, but that's okay. We don't have to. And yet there will be presence of mind for others later. What do you mean? There are going to be people, gang, believers in Christ, those living at the time of the tribulation, the saved, the tribulation saints. There will be the 144,000 sealed Jews in the tribulation. There will be believers at that time who will come upon this verse. 
And they'll read it and they'll say, what do you suppose that means? And guess what? They're going to know because they will hear it. And it's going to be presence of mind. They'll realize this is what he was talking about. Seal up these things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them down. So for us, we don't need to know. We don't need to hear. For them, they're going to hear. And they're going to know. And the seven thunders will thunder for them. Now we may say... We, know, we don't know what the seven thunders will say, but we do have some clues as to what the seven thunders are. And this is interesting. Job 37 verse 5 tells us that God thunders with His voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Just a few days before His death, and He's sharing with His disciples, and something amazing happened. You may recall this, John chapter 12, verse 27. He's talking to his disciples and he says, My soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came out of heaven. And the voice said, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And so the crowd of people who stood by heard it. And they were saying that it thundered. They heard thunder. And others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. And now, judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So in Jesus' day, he's explaining the death. And he's saying, that thunder that you just heard, that was for your sake. That was the Lord speaking. That was God thundering. It's one of the rare times when, when God speaks, Here, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. It wasn't just for Jesus' encouragement. It was for the people to hear. And I believe the same thing is going to happen at this point of time in the tribulation. There will be massive thunder. The seven thunders will sound after the cry of this strong angel. People on earth will shudder and shake. But believers in Christ, those who at that point are saved, will be encouraged incredibly. Because they'll know that God is still on their side, that He is calling out, that He is speaking something for them. What is He speaking? Again, we don't know. But Vincent's Word Studies explains that the Jews of Jesus' day were accustomed to speak of thunder as the seven voices. The seven voices of God. Look at Psalm 29. Go ahead and flip over there. Psalm 29, verse 1. Why is it that the Jews speak of the seven thunders as the voice of God? Listen to this. Psalm 29, beginning in verse 1. Just kind of follow along as I read to you here. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in His temple everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. 
The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. How many times does that phrase, the voice of the Lord, occur in Psalm 29? Did anybody count it? Seven times. The voice of the Lord thunders. And seven times we hear the voice of the Lord referred to in this psalm. And so Jewish people reading this would understand, would think of the voice of the Lord as the voice of the seven thunders. Or the seven thunders of God. It's God's voice. What are you saying, Rick? Quickly back over to Revelation chapter 10. The strong angel cries out as when a lion roars. And in response to the lion roar of the, of the strong angel, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. In other words, God says, Amen! <laughs> Now again, I don't know what exactly he said, but he responds. And it's God responding, and it's his voice coming right back at it. Now verse 5. Then the angel whom I saw, standing on the sea, and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer that word delay, by the way, in the Greek, it's chronos. It means time or delay. There will be time no longer. There will be delay no longer. But, verse 7, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, we're talking about the seventh trumpet that comes along in chapter 11, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Benjamin Franklin once wrote that he was distressed over the time of his birth and location in history. He wished that he could have lived at another time. Why? Because this great scientist, inventor, philosopher was amazed and intrigued at the possibility of all the discoveries that would be made a hundred years after his life. And wished that he could live at another time just to see what was coming. Now I've said this before, I believe we live in the best time to live in all of history. Because we're watching it all come down. We're able now to read prophecy of years past, 2,000 years ago, 3,000, 4,000 years back. We're able to read these things and see them in context and understand where God is bringing everything ultimately. And it's fascinating and it's amazing and it's thrilling and, and not a little frightening at times. But it's the best time in my mind to be alive. But understand that at present, and according to this angel here, something has been delayed. Something has been put on hold. Remember he says this, he says that there will be delay no longer, which tells us that there's delay up until he says this. Something's waiting, something's not happening, something has not come about yet. And what might that be? And I submit to you that it's nothing less than the coming of Christ and his kingdom. That's what the seventh angel who blows the seventh trumpet signifies or indicates, the coming of Christ and his kingdom. That it's coming very quickly. And so the thing, the very thing which has been delayed is the kingdom. Now, we walk in the kingdom now. We are part of the kingdom on this side of, of glory. But the true coming of the kingdom of Jesus on earth, of that millennial reign, of the eternal reign from the throne of David, that kingdom has been delayed. It's on hold. Which is why John ends the book of Revelation with the yearning phrase, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Delay no longer. We want to see you now. Are you anxious for his return? Do you find yourself in that place? And I don't mean just when you're having a rough day and you think, oh, Lord, take me now. <laughs> I mean, can you, do you find your blood pumping? Are you getting excited? I love Cheryl's email address. Amen, come Lord Jesus at Comcast.net. 
That's it. I mean, written all the way. I love especially when she has to write that, you know, like we're buying something online and they ask for the email address. She has to write the whole thing in there, you know, and people see that. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are you hungry? Are you passionate? Are you excited about the possibility of His coming? Oh, Rick, I, there are too many people I know that don't know Jesus yet. I understand that. Selfishly, if we can allow ourselves a moment of that, are you excited about seeing Him? Penelope told me today, I, I got to share this, I think it's so cute, about Leticia talking about Jesus coming. And she said, well, how exactly did she put it? Can you just tell that? She just said, she's like, well, Mama, I'm going to be so shy when I see Jesus and he's big like you. Yeah. <laughs> did you hear that in the back? Did you hear that? Leticia said, Mama, I'm just going to be so shy when I see Jesus and he's big like you. And I'm just... <laughs> I'm going to be shy I love that we're all going to be shy we're all going to have that sense of oh, wow <laughs> you know because every knee will bow and we're going to be bowing before him but I don't know about you I'm going to be one going <laughs> are you excited about that be excited about that live for that those of us and, the, and it's all of us who have people who we know if Jesus came tonight would be lost. Don't wallow in that sorrow. You're no good to lost people when you're wallowing in sorrow over their lostness. Or guilt over their lostness. Those of you who have parents, grown, or, or children, your parents of, of children who are now grown adults, and you look back at how you lived your life before them, and you think, oh, if only I had stop it. Would you just stop it? That will not save them. What will save them is the passion and joy and love you have for Jesus now. Your enthusiasm about Him coming now. Live there. Live there. Look forward to His coming. Now, what is this mystery? It says uh, in verse 7 that in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when He is about to sound, then the mystery of God, the mystery of God is finished as He preached to His servants the prophets. What is this mystery? By the way, the mystery, it says finished right there. The word is teleo in the Greek. It means the mystery is completed. Fulfilled finally. It's come to total fruition. It's not the mystery has been revealed. It's the mystery, mystery has been finished. What are you saying? I'm saying this. The mystery has been revealed. We know the mystery. What's being said in verse 7 is simply that it's being completed. But we already know what the mystery is. You might add a word into, your, uh, into that verse, verse 7, where it says, the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Right there, preached. You might want to just add in, as he preached the gospel to his servants, the prophets. Now I know some of you might say, wait a minute, doesn't it say that if we add anything to the words of this book that we get the plagues added to us? So I'm not adding anything. I'm not going to add a thing here. Trust me, it's all right. The word, the word used here is euangelizo in the Greek, and it means to announce the gospel. It's where we get the word evangelism. It's the preaching of the gospel. And so what's being said here is the mystery of God is finished as he preached, as he gave the gospel to his servants, the prophets. In other words, as they understood or received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now listen, this is wonderful. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Paul says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now, Paul says, now is manifested. 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this, he said the mystery is revealed. 
The mystery is manifested in our time. He says that it's been kept secret, but it's now manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, it has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Flip quickly to 1 Peter chapter 1. Just a couple of books over to your left. 1 Peter chapter 1. And listen to how Peter describes these things. In verse 6, 1 Peter 1, 6. Speaking of this mystery, as you'll see in a moment, he says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though for a little while now, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Watch this. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That's so cool. The Old Testament prophets were motivated to prophesy by the Spirit of Christ. And what they were prophesying was the coming of Christ, but it was the Spirit of Christ who was telling them about His coming and what to say about that. As Isaiah writes of Jesus, as David in Psalm 22 writes about the crucifixion, the motivating Spirit was the Spirit of Christ telling them, write this, this is what's going to happen when I come. And the prophets somehow sensed this, somehow must have known something about this. It was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. In other words, gang, the mystery of the gospel for the prophets of old and the people today is very simply this. How is God going to do it? For the Old Testament prophets, how is God going to bring salvation to the Jews and to the Gentiles? How is that going to work? We're God's chosen people. Daniel, who, who is writing in Babylon, as the people are in captivity in Babylon, is writing these massive wonderful prophecies and going but how's this going to work you're going to save us you're going to save them Isaiah saying that the message has gone out to the Gentiles that in this message all the Gentiles hope how's that going to work it's a mystery how God's going to take Jew and Gentile alike and save them and it's a mystery to us no longer it's not a mystery Romans chapter 10 and 11 9, 10 and 11 all three of those chapters great study Go through that. Think about it. Process what God's doing with Israel and with the Gentiles and how He brings them together. We could call it the mystery of the graft. How they were the original olive tree and how they lost their originality. They, they rejected Christ and we got grafted into that. But then how Paul says they're going to be regrafted back into the tree again. God's way of working this out is so stunning, so amazing. Romans 11.25 
Paul said, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Back in Revelation chapter 10, he says there's a delay. What's the delay? The delay is the fullness of the Gentiles. Until the gospel has gotten out to that point where the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God has everything on hold. It's on delay. If you read Daniel chapter 9, Daniel talks about the 77s, 70, seven year time periods that are given for Israel. And if you compare the 77s to what's happened in history, 69 of those have happened. There is one seven year period that's on hold for Israel right now. Why is it on hold? Why hasn't it happened? Because these are not the times of Israel. These are the times of the Gentiles. You might say, well, Rick, Israel became a nation in 1948. And I say, yeah, we're on borrowed time. We're in overtime right now. God in his mercy is allowing a little more time for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in. And when it does, boom, we're gone. And God goes to work on Israel again. And will save at least, the Bible tells us, one third of all Israel. He's going to bring through the fire. We'll talk about that in another time. But the mystery has been revealed. It has not been completed yet. It has not been fulfilled. It has not been teleoed. <laughs> teleost. That hasn't happened. The fulfillment hasn't happened. But the mystery has been revealed to us. We see it. We know it. And when will it happen? I believe, gang, what we're going to see here is Israel finally really tuning in and understanding just before the seventh angel will sound his seven, seventh trumpet. Now... We're going to see that more clearly in chapter 11 next week. Let's finish this up. Verse 8. Then he says, The voice which I heard from heaven I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book. What book? Remember that strong angel? Verse 2. Had in his hand a little book. He's holding a little book which was open. And so he says, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. <laughs> give me the little book! And he said to me, take it and eat it. What? Yeah, I want you to eat your words. Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. <laughs> Verse 10. So I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So John here in the middle of Revelation has an interesting little snack. And some people think that this book, literally this scroll, is the same scroll that we read about in Revelation chapter 6. I don't believe it is, because this little book that John ingests here, this little book that he eats and swallows, is much, much bigger than the scroll in chapter 6. But I want you to process this just for a couple more minutes tonight. What kind of book, when digested, could be sweet to the taste, but bitter to the stomach? And I submit to you that it's the Bible. That it's the Word of God. Think about this. In this parenthetical section of the Revelation, I believe Jesus is giving John a prophetic picture of the Scriptures. A prophetic picture of the Bible. Remember, this is around 96 to 99, somewhere in there, A.D. 
the Bible in the form that we have it now was not completed. Oh, and by the way, I mentioned the Da Vinci Code this morning. And in the Da Vinci Code, it, it says basically that, that it was Constantine who put the scriptures together in around 300 or and later. And then it was Constantine who first introduced the idea of the deity of Christ. And that's all baloney. We had a full set of the scriptures, even as we know it today, as, as early as the 200s. And the deity of Christ is preached clearly throughout scripture all the way back to when it was written at the time of the apostles. So, more fodder for the Da Vinci Code. But who knows, they may not even be able to make the movie if Dan Brown is uh, convicted of plagiarism, but we'll watch how that one plays out. But you might read this and say, okay, wait a minute, hold on here. Hold on. This, this little book, this little book is sweet, but it's bitter. It's sweet to the tongue, but it's bitter to the stomach. Sweet to the tongue is easy. I think we can all buy that one pretty quickly. Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warmed. In, in keeping them there is great reward. And I am a honey fanatic. Man, I read this verse and my mouth just starts to water. And especially, I remember going to visit my grandmother in South Texas when I was a kid. And she always had a big jar of honey and had the comb in it. And I'd take a big scoop of the comb and eat it. Now, now that I understand you know, how the bees do that whole thing, I'm not really into the honeycomb anymore. But I love the honey. I can put honey on everything and it's passed on to our kids. They put it on everything. It's, it's actually kind of sick. You know, they got it on their rolls, they have it on their potatoes, on their green peas, on their meat. Give me more honey, and I just pour it on everything. But the word is like that. It is sweeter than honey. And you know that. You know you wouldn't be here tonight if you didn't understand that. That you go through the word of God and you hear the word, you go, Man, it's so it's so sweet. And so I think, okay, a little book that's sweet, that could be a little Bible. I get it. That makes sense. But gang, listen, with the sweetness comes a warning. And the second thing is, the Bible is not only sweet to the taste, but it is bitter to the belly. It's bitter to the belly. The Bible is? Yes, it is. Gang, feeding on the Word of God is a sweet and sour meal. The Word gets into us. It always tends to start out this way with that, with that sweet taste. Oh, taste and see, Psalm 34, 8, that the Lord is good. And we read of these things of grace and forgiveness and love. And man, that gets into my mouth and I go, mmm, mmm, good. That is tasty. I love that. But the more I digest the word, the more my belly begins to ache. The more I have an ache within me. What do you mean? Let me explain this. The Greeks wouldn't have sold bumper stickers for their chariots with the following phrase. You've seen them, the little bumper stickers on cars that say, I heart you. Meaning, I love you. It's got a little heart in there. I, when I was a kid and those bumper stickers first came out, I didn't get it at all. I'm like, I heart you? I don't know, what does that mean? Someone finally said the heart is for love. And, oh, right, 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 got it. I love you. They wouldn't have put that. What they would have had is the word I, and then a little picture maybe of some intestines, and then a you. I bowel you. <laughs> is what they would have... What do you mean by this? Because the heart to the Greek person was not the seat of the emotion. 
we talk about, man, I felt it in my heart. You don't, do you? You don't really feel in your heart. Not up here. If you do, you need to go see the doctor and quit. You feel it down here. You feel it in your belly, in your gut. Man, when you're ner- when you get where do we get butterflies? In our stomach. You get nervous, you feel it down here. And I've told you all before, there are times where, man, I'm preaching, I just get so excited and freak out, and by the time I get home, I'm just, woohoo! And I start to relax, and my stomach starts to go, okay, chill out, Rick. You need a little work here, you know. It's in the belly. It's in the bowels where the seat of the emotion is. Listen to this, Mark 6.34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd. And he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. The Greek word for compassion, it's a great word. It's splachna. You can't say it without spitting. Literally in that sentence, it's splachnizomai. Splachnizomai. What is that? It means a yearning in my bowels. Now let me put this into context and understand this. Jesus went ashore. He saw a large crowd and he felt a yearning in his bowels, in his gut. That's compassion. He felt a physical phenomenon, a physical feeling because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. Why? Because, oh, he just ached for them. His belly got bitter. His stomach began to hurt when he saw the people and realize their need for him. Compassion, gang, is a bellyache. When you really think about and hurt for other people. When we're in love, the physical sensation is not in the heart, it's in the belly. I love this old song that uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote. He never sang it on an album, but it was on a video that he one time put out. And the verse goes like this. He says, last night at the football game, I held your hand for the very first time. I felt something I could not explain. Now I can't get you off of my mind. Since I woke up this morning, my knees have been shaking and my hands are sweating too. This could be love or this could be the flu. (laughs) Either way. But being the Word incarnate, Jesus knew the sweetness of the Word. He was the Word. But when He saw the people, He felt their lostness. There's a wonderful sweetness for us in knowing that Jesus saves. But the moment I know that, there's an equally bitter ache when I understand that if Jesus saves, there are people I know and love who are not saved. And that makes me ache. And that makes the word sometimes a little bitter. I read this and go, oh, it's so sweet for me. But they don't know. So it it becomes bitter in my stomach. I'll just read this to you quickly. The book of Ezekiel chapter 2. I'll flip over there real quick. Yeah, flip over to Ezekiel chapter 2. And verse 8. Because this is a parallel passage. In fact, it's worth just kind of taking notes on maybe circling some things as we read it real quickly here. But Ezekiel 2 verse 8 down through 3 verse 15 parallels Revelation 10. What happens to John happened before. It happens to Ezekiel. Watch this. Ezekiel chapter 2 verse 8. still hear the fluttering of paper so I'll give you a chance to get there everybody there Ezekiel 2.8 watch this now you son of man this is what the Lord how the Lord referred to Ezekiel you son of man listen to what I'm speaking to you do not be rebellious like that rebellious house it's talking about Israel open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you and then I looked and behold a hand was extended to me and lo a scroll was in it 
When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and the back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. And he said, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll. And go, speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me this scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and oh, it was sweet as honey in my mouth. And then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. Nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language, whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. By the way, another answer here to the question last week, why does God keep preaching the gospel even in the tribulation when he knows nobody's going to repent again? Because that's the heart of God. He cannot stop offering grace even though we have stopped receiving it. Maybe not us. But those alive in the tribulation, even once it's beyond the point of return where they will not repent, God still pours out His grace. As He does with Ezekiel, He even tells them, they're not going to listen to you. Ezekiel could say, well, why am I preaching? Because I've got to give them my word anyway. I will give it and give it and give it because that's my heart. The Lord would say, I am a God of grace and I will not stop. So in verse 7, He goes on and says, Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them, or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. He made Ezekiel hard-headed. In other words, he gave him his word and said, you stand by that. You stick to it. And don't back down. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, take into your heart all my words which I will speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exiles, the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord God. Verse 12. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in His place. And I heard the sound of the wings of the living beings touching one another, and the sound of the wheels beside them. And even a great rumbling sound. The wheels, what's that? Oh, we'll get to that when we study Ezekiel. The wheels are Ezekiel's best... Oh boy, goodness sakes. The wheels are Ezekiel's best description of what he sees of the angels in heaven. But again, that's another study for another time. Verse 14. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. Now watch this. And I went embittered in the rage of my spirit. That word given to him. That scroll was sweet as honey in his mouth, but now he has a bitterness inside. And the hand of the Lord was strong on me. Verse 15, Then I came to the exiles who lived beside the river Chabar at Tel Aviv, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. <laughs> you ever cause consternation with someone who doesn't believe? You ever been in that place where they look at you and go, Will you just stop talking about your Jesus stuff? It's consternation. And you think, well, maybe I should just back down a little bit because I'm just making them uncomfortable. And God says, will you keep preaching my name? You bring consternation. If it, if it upsets them, so be it. 
Because they've got to be confronted with the truth. They've got to be confronted with the name of Jesus and with my grace. So you keep bringing it. That which is sweet in your mouth, yes, it's going to make your belly ache. You're going to have that compassionate drive. You're going to want people to know about Jesus. But gang, after Ezekiel became embittered, he began to passionately preach. And the problem was, the result of his preaching was this consternation. Sweet taste in his mouth, bitterness in his belly, as he begins to preach and preach and preach, and it just upset the people. And in the day in which we live, gang, the Time Magazine poll reveals the following. 80% of Americans believe in a literal heaven. That's pretty good. 75% of Americans believe when they die, they're going to heaven, and yet, 75% of Americans are not even born again would not categorize themselves or describe themselves as born-again Christians. Three out of four would not accept that category. Jesus said in John 3 verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter four, verse four, or chapter 7 verse 14, Jesus said, For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few they are who find it. And it's been said, and you may have heard, that the distance that people will miss heaven by is, is roughly 18 inches. The distance between the head and the heart. I think we could add another 12 inches to that or so, depending on a person's eyesight. It's the distance from the word to the head. That keeps a person from actually being saved. In Amos chapter 8, verse 11, Behold, the Lord says, Days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. And I submit to you that we live in that day. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Is that not where we live? Where the vast majority of people would rather just be tickled and pleased and walk out, if they even do go to church, walk out feeling like pleasantly, you know, it doesn't have to affect me or change me, causes no consternation, certainly no bitterness. Hi, Annie. There she is. Certainly doesn't cause any bitterness in my stomach. And I've shared this. I, you know, even as a pastor, there are times I get up to, to preach and I know what's in the notes and I know what's in the chapter and I'm going, Lord, I don't know why you want this this morning, but it's not real comfortable. And it's always those times when I am a little, in my spirit, kind of feeling like, oh, okay, we're going to bring this, Lord, because it's your word, but I'm not sure this is the best thing. It's always those times when people, though they may experience consternation, are the most changed and the most impacted. It's not the soft, fluffy times. Well, you might say again, if people are not going to listen, if the word is just going to fall on deaf ears, what am I to do? And my advice to you is the last verse of Revelation chapter 10. Verse 11, they said to me, you must prophesy again. You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John, a time is coming when all repentance is going to cease and rebellion will rule. So John, prophesy again. A time is coming when people will reject completely the word of God. John, prophesy again. And John is experiencing some of what I believe Jeremiah experienced 
What Ezekiel experienced, getting that sweet word of the Lord in his mouth, and it becomes bitter to him. And so what do you do when you have a stomach ache? What does your body do? It says you've got to get it out. Get it out. If it causes a bitterness, if you feel that splotzinomai in the Greek, that compassion, that yearning and churning, you've got to get the word out. It's the only way to deal with that bellyache. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 8. Jeremiah says, For me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. He's complaining. He's kind of whining a little bit. But he says, But if I say I will not remember him, or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. And Jeremiah is right on target. He says, man, I get filled with the word of the Lord, and then every time I speak it, I get picked on and beat up, and no one wants to hear it anyway, so I say, I'm not going to do it anymore. And a day or two goes by in a week, and suddenly I'm like, I can't hold it in. I've got to get it out. And this is what Jesus wants to do with us. This is the power, gang. I was talking with, uh, with Laura. Laura Pierce about our children's ministry and about volunteers. And it's a little shy right now. And I'm not telling you this as a, as a recruitment campaign. They could use more volunteers. But you know what? As we talk about this, I realize something. God is doing something here at the bridge that's very important. He is beginning right now in the early stages of this fellowship by getting his word in. I hate to tell you this, but a time is coming when the word that you're getting filled up with is going to start churning and burning in your belly and you're going to have to do something. You're not going to be able to sit here any longer. Now, I hope you continue to sit here because I don't want to be in this barn all by myself. But, <laughs> but you're going to feel that and God's word will begin to work in you. And you say, Lord, Rick, Rick, not Lord, you say, Rick, I don't know how to do this ministry stuff. And so I just, I just keep coming to Bible study and I say, right on, that's what you do. You don't know how to minister, you don't know exactly what your place is going to be in this fellowship or in the kingdom or, or what God expects of you. You keep coming and you keep getting fed. You keep filling up because eventually you're going to have to get it out. You are going to have to get the word out. Listen, two, uh, two vehicles jamming down the road. Two roads side by side. Get this picture in your mind. Maybe two big trucks that are open in the back. And in both, they're filled with people. One road's a little more narrow. The other one's rather wide. But they're side by side going down the road. You happen to be in the truck that is on the narrow road. And someone hands you a piece of information. It's a little map. And you look at that map and, and you realize that your road kind of just keeps on going. <laughs> but the road that a bunch of your friends and other people are on that wider road comes to a sheer cliff and a drop off and no one in that vehicle knows. No one has any idea where they're headed. What do you do? You think, oh, you know, I gotta be more sensitive. I gotta be cautious. I don't wanna upset them in their truck. They're having such a good time over there. And I know if I say, hey, hey, there, there's a cliff ahead, they're going to go, oh, shut up, will you? What would you do? Real case scenario, let's say that actually happened and you're in one truck and you realize the other truck is headed for a cliff. Do you go, excuse me, pardon, uh, oh, never mind. Or do you shout at the top of your lungs, get out of the truck, stop the truck, get over here. You are headed for disaster. Would you cry out with the voice of the prophet? Who says, heads up, you're heading for a cliff. Would you cry out and say, repent and call on the name of Jesus and be saved. And you say, I've done that and nobody listens. And I say, prophesy again. 
Prophesy again. You've heard the word tonight. You know Jesus. He's all you need to know. You've tasted the word. It's sweet to the taste. But the thought of the lost will always produce bitterness in the belly. And you know what, gang? I pray that he makes all of us feel that bitterness. Feel that ache. So that when we're at work, when we're at the st- wherever we are, when we're with friends who do not believe in Jesus, the ache comes back and we have to get it out. We have to say, I don't know about a lot of things in life, but I know about Jesus. Will you let me tell you about Jesus?